All right, we are back. You know, we, we should have mentioned at the top of the show uh, one of the most earth-shaking items of the last week in terms of news. That would be Pervez Musharraf's uh, declaring a state of emergency and ruling by decree in Pakistan. Condoleezza Rice has expressed some dissatisfaction. Of course, the secretary also noted that the regime's mass arrests don't outweigh the priority of the war on terrorism. Writing in the New York Times, David Sanger and David Rohde noted... The Bush administration signaled on Sunday that it would likely continue to keep billions of dollars flowing to Pakistan's military, despite the detention of human rights activists and leaders of the political opposition by Pervez Musharraf. Of course, uh, the photo on the front of Newsweek magazine, the most dangerous nation in the world isn't Iraq, it's Pakistan, has a picture that um, really does sort of give you a taste of what sort of chaos might ensue over in Pakistan. On the other hand, with friends like Pervez Musharraf, we may not need very many enemies. Remember back in campaign 2000 when Musharraf took over the government and candidate Bush was asked what he thought about it and said he thought it was a good thing. He was also questioned during the campaign as to whether he knew the name of the general that had taken over in Pakistan, to which he responded, General. Then looked at the interviewer and said, No, I don't. Do you? To which the interviewer replied, Well, no, I don't either, but I'm not running for president of the United States. Well, we all know his name now, don't we? This might be a good moment to to read from a commentary that uh, was written about three weeks ago by an American pundit. We'll we'll leave out his name at the moment. Referring to a Washington Times indictment on uh, Vladimir Putin uh, blocking new sanctions on Iran and the fact that Russia was selling anti-tank aircraft to Iran and that... uh, They were talking about an OPEC-style natural gas cartel. That's the Russians and the Iranians. The Times called this uh, Soviet-era behavior. Ask the pundit, what was the motive? Why has Putin's Russia turned hostile? Why is Putin mending fences with China, Iran, and Syria? Why is he sending bear bombers to the edge of American airspace? Why has Russia turned against America? We're asked to go back 16 years to 1991 and 2. At this point, Russia let the Berlin Wall be torn down, its satellite states be voted or thrown out of power across Eastern Europe. It agreed to pull the Red Army all the way back inside its border. Russia agreed to let the Soviet Union dissolve into 15 independent nations. The Communist Party agreed to share power and let itself be voted out. Russia embraced freedom and American-style capitalism and invited Americans in to show them how it was done. Russia did not use its veto in the Security Council to block the U.S. war to drive Saddam Hussein, an ally, out of Kuwait. When 9-11 struck, Vladimir Putin gave his blessings to U.S. troops being stationed in former republics as bases for U.S. invasions. What was Moscow's reward for its pro-American policy? The U.S. began moving NATO into Eastern Europe and then into former Soviet republics. Six ex-Warsaw Pact nations are now NATO allies, as are three ex-republics of the Soviet Union. In 1999, the U.S. bombed Serbia, which had long looked to Mother Russia for protection. Now America supports the severing of Kosovo from Serbia and the creation of a new Islamic state in the Balkans over Moscow's protest. While Moscow removed its military bases from Cuba and all over the Third World, we have sought permanent military bases in Russia's backyard in Central Asia. It is we who dissolved the Nixon-Brezhnev-era ABM Treaty and announced we would put missile defense systems in Poland and the Czech Republic. 
Under Presidents Clinton and Bush, the U.S. financed a pipeline for Caspian Sea oil to transit Azerbaijan and Georgia to the Black Sea and Turkey, thus cutting Russia out of the action. Noted our pundit, at the Cold War's end, the U.S. was given one of the greatest opportunities of history to embrace Russia, the largest nation on Earth, as partner, friend, and ally. But we blew it. We moved NATO onto Russia's front porch, ignored her valid interests and concerns, and with our indispensable nation arrogance, treated her as a defeated power, much as France treated Weimar Germany after Versailles. Who restarted the Cold War? Bush and the braying hegemonists he brought to power with him. Great empires and tiny minds go ill together. Who wrote all this? That pinko leftist Patrick J. Buchanan. We find much to agree with. Of course, Alan Greenspan's been the news of lately ripping uh, the Bush administration over deficits. Noted USA Today last month in an editorial. All of a sudden, in the twilight of his presidency, the man who swelled the national debt from $5.7 trillion to $9 trillion in seven years is threatening to veto all the Democrats' spending bills if they have the temerity to include any, quote, wasteful spending, unquote. Among the wasteful programs that Bush dislikes is a proposal to extend health coverage to children whose parents lack health insurance. All the Democratic proposals Bush says he'll veto, not incidentally, would be dwarfed by Bush's request for more Iraq war spending, which is now running at $12 billion a month. When we're running out of time, so I'm only going to quote uh, one sentence from Robert Scheer's excellent essay uh, about war spending. Scheer noted, If Osama bin Laden wasn't on the payroll of Lockheed Martin or some other large defense contractor, then he deserves to have been. What a boon! 9-11 has been for the merchants of war. Anyway, you know, we promised on last week's show we'd try and do justice to the passing of um, Joey Bishop and Robert Gallet, but I think we'll talk about those gentlemen on next week's show. And of course, we haven't had a word to say to date on the death of Marcel Marceau, which is strangely appropriate. And you know, we probably should talk about the fact that the uh, attorney general designate can't seem to make up his mind or whether simulated drowning of people constitutes torture, but let's just let that one go as well. And I think we'll also defer the rather surprising news item, at least I thought it was surprising, that uh, this week the Supreme Court was reviewing the $2.5 billion punitive damages award stemming from the disastrous 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill. That's worthy of some analysis, uh, especially when the the picture that accompanied uh, the discussion in the paper this week showed uh, workers scrubbing rocks on Alaska's Prince William Sound in in a move evidently orchestrated by the public relations firm that Exxon hired because no one ever demonstrated that scrubbing the rocks did anyone any good. And by anyone, I mean not just the fishermen and people who live up there, but all of the wildlife as well. Now, let's close today with a little bit of a lighter item. This comes from the letters section of New Scientist magazine. I think I'll just quote from this directly. Someone wrote the magazine from London, a man named David Hambling, asking, What happened to the U.S. Air Force's Ig Nobel Prize-winning gay bomb proposal after it was put forward in 1994? The Pentagon has played down the story ever since New Scientist covered it on January 15th of 2005. One spokesman is quoted as saying, it was rejected out of hand. Another claimed in 2005 that it was never considered, quote, for further development, unquote. 
Noted the magazine, these claims sit awkwardly with the known facts. In 2000, six years after the idea was proposed, the document describing the gay bomb was included in a CD-ROM produced by the Pentagon's Joint Non-Lethal Weapons Directorate, which was distributed to military and government agencies to encourage new projects. In 2001, the proposal was one of a number which was put forward for assessment by a scientific panel at the National Academy of Sciences. No information has been released suggesting the proposal was taken any further. However, aphrodisiacs would fall under the U.S. military's broad new definition of a, quote, calmative agent, unquote. And no, I, <laughs> I have to interject at this point. I have no idea why the military thinks an aphrodisiac is calmative. But uh, the general term calmative agent is the one chosen for an anti-personnel chemical that leaves the victim awake and mobile, but without the will or ability to meet military objectives or carry out criminal activity. Note of the magazine, it seems there is considerable classified research in this area. We're going to attempt in the weeks to follow to do a follow-up on, uh, on a story we did three years ago with UC Davis's professor Mark Wheelis, who is extensively quoted in New Scientist, regarding some new efforts by the military and police to develop inhalation agents that can knock people out without killing them, something is, which is a very difficult thing to pull off. We talked about this very topic, among others, with Dr. Wheelis several years back, and it's time for an update, we think. But we are out of time today. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. On next week's show, we will do the third and final installment of our interview with Peter Dale Scott, during which we will discuss the actual events of September 11, 2001. And we expect that our old pal Will Durst will rejoin us next week, too. We'll see you then.